Welcome to Life, L-I-F-E, Luxury in Full Effect. I'm David Frangioni. I'm here with Justin Lee. And this is the show where we interview the people operating at the top of the luxury market. From entertainment, real estate, celebrity industries, and everything in between. Together, we'll hear their life stories and how they got to where they are today. Hello, everybody. This is David Frangioni for Life, Luxury in Full Effect, starring David Frangioni and Justin Lee. So Justin, my partner, is traveling the world right now, so he's not going to be with us on this, so I'm going to steer. And I'm very excited today because we have a very special guest. We have Brian Wickersham from Ox Architecture, his firm. And he's a forward-thinking architect. He's got a lot to share. We're going to hear his story and learn more about him and uh, you know, learn some really cool things that we can apply to our own lives through his journey. So welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me, David. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Thank you. Likewise. So Brian, you're in LA, correct? I am in Los Angeles proper. We're, our offices are just outside of uh, downtown in MacArthur Park. And are you originally from LA? No, I actually grew up in rural Oregon. My family has a proper working farm. And so very different here in LA from what I grew up around. I'll say. So along the journey, let's start early on. When do you start to realize that architecture is in your blood? It's what you love. You're going to make an impact in the world. When does the passion start to become clear to you? Well, it was actually a really long path. I was really lucky that I was exposed to architecture and construction at a pretty young age. My grandfather was a general contractor. And so really, as early as I could walk, I was on job sites. I have pictures when I was a toddler standing on huge earth-moving equipment. And so I always grew up around construction and architecture. I don't know that I really understood architecture yet. But as I was getting older and, and going through school, I was drawn to the arts. And so right out of high school, I actually went to study art. And I was a BFA student, primarily doing drawing and painting and later sculpture. And I really love the arts and I'm still really passionate about that. But I was realizing that I needed to challenge the other side of my brain a bit more. And so it was you know, in the back of my mind that I really liked architecture. I loved visiting strange, weird buildings all over the world. And so I decided I'm going to make a change. And they transferred into an architecture program. And I realized that Pretty early on, it, it was the right spot for me. I, I was able to be creative, but I was also able to use uh, the other side of my brain, you know, focused on math and problem solving. And I think the passion really grew out of the ed- education for it. And so went through undergrad and grad school and then found myself coming down to Los Angeles for what I thought was going to be one year working at Frank Gehry's office. And, and what year uh, is this now? This is in 2001. I moved okay. down. I got an opportunity to come down. I, I was visiting LA and I literally went to Gary's office and waited for somebody to open the door. And I caught the door and walked in and handed them my resume. Flew back to Oregon and was literally working on my family farm. And one day I stopped to have lunch and I got a call from one of the partners at Gary's office. And he said, you know, this is uh, George Metzger from Frank Gehry's office. We'd really love you to come down and, for an interview next week for a job. And I honestly thought it was a joke. And I said, oh, 
well, let me think about it. And it was really funny because I don't know that anyone had ever said, oh yeah, let me think about it. <laughs> yeah, before. I bet. And so I walked out and I was dumbfounded by the conversation. I ran into my stepfather and, and I was explaining to him, I said, yeah, this pretty famous architect wants me to come down and interview for a job. You know, I had no guarantee that I was getting the job. And I was explaining to him, I was like, yeah, he's pretty famous. It's a pretty big deal. And my stepfather has no idea who Frank Gehry is, knows very little about architecture or really anything in this world. And he looked me right in the face. He said, kind of shook his head up and down. He goes, all right, you're fired. Get out of here. And, And that was basically that. I called Gary's office back the next day and said I would come down. And without a job, I packed up my pickup that I had at the time with everything I could fit in it and drove to LA. I guess the rest is sort of history. 20 years later and my own practice and life here in LA, it really was the right decision and the right move for me. Well, you make the decision very quickly and very decisively, right? So as soon as you get the opportunity, in no time, you're down there. What do you think the reason that Gary called you initially and offered you that job? What do you think it was that got you in there when you didn't have really a lot of hands-on experience, right? You were basically out of college. Yeah, right out of college. I actually pretty certain I know. And it was because I had grown up around construction and spent a lot of my time building cabinets and desks and furniture during college. I had a lot of hands-on building experience. Ah. And And when you start at Frank Gehry's office, what your primarily doing is building physical models of the buildings. And so I had a lot of shop experience. And I think it was really that simple that I had a lot of technical ability to build things with my hands. So you went in there and you started doing the molds of the buildings? Yeah. You know, building the physical models. The main thing that I worked on was the uh, Marquez de Riscal winery model that ended up going to the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. I spent months, you know, folding paper and getting that just right. It was, I think that experience at Gary's office was really where I learned that I had a long way to go. There was a lot wow, of humility. That's, that's from a pretty that profound time. moment, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, when there, you there start was... to realize what you didn't know, but you didn't know you didn't know. Yeah. And I think that feeling is every single day of my life now. But <laughs> welcome to the club, but go on. <laughs> But I think that the big thing is that I needed that humility. You come out of school and you think you know it all and you're going to take the world by storm. And you get in there and you see these really talented, really smart people. And you just realize, wow, I have so much to learn. And so I learned a lot about humility there. And then after that time, I went to work for a company called Daily Genic, which is now uh, Kevin Daly Architects. And, and Kevin was another Frank Gehry. He was a project architect there for a long time. Ah. And so that became an extension of that time and a little bit of an insight into what it was like to work at Gary's office maybe 20 years earlier when it was a much smaller firm. Now, and wait, how it, long are you at Gary's office? How many years? I was just, just 2001. One I year. Started, yeah. Well, I started in the summer after I graduated. And then in that fall was 9-11. And we ended up losing a lot of projects in the office. But I'd worked really hard and I think made a teeny bit of a name for myself in the time I was there. And so I was lucky that even though a lot of people lost their jobs, the people in the office recommended me to Kevin Daly. And and Kevin, as an alum of Gary's office, brought me on and I ended up working there for Kevin six or seven years. And in that time, the time there 
I really credit Kevin with teaching me how to be an architect. If Gary's office was about humility and sort of realizing I had a long way to go, Kevin was the one that really taught me what it took to do architecture at a really high level. The rigor and the knowledge that it requires to do it at a really high level. And so it was really there that I think that I started to come into my own a little bit as an architect and as a designer and in learning how you even explore ideas. And so I'm really grateful. I mean, I'm grateful to all the people that I've worked with over the years, not just the owners of the companies, because you can learn from everyone. But that I think that was the time that I really started. That was a turning point. That was a big turning point. Now, was Kevin a mentor for you, him himself? He was and is. Still to this day, if something comes up and I'm toiling over it, I can send him an email or go grab a beer. And so he's been a great mentor to me and continues to be. And what kind of stuff are you doing? What kind of, are they commercial or residential or what's the mix at at Kevin's firm when you're there for those six or seven years? Well, when I started, we were, I think we're just a five or six person firm. And we grew over that period into 12 or 15 people. And it largely was when I got hired, Kevin and his partner at the time, Chris, had just got the commission to do the Art Center College of Design South Campus building. And up until that point, the project's small residential, some uh, small educational stuff. But that was a big moment for them because it was a big high-profile project for very reputable institution. And here I was, I was brand new to the firm. I'd just been building models for the last few months. And I was all of a sudden thrown into this opportunity to work really hands-on on this big project. So you and, were one of the go-to guys on that project. Well, I wasn't initially. I was just kind of a low-level design kid, but I worked really hard. And I think that I proved myself to the guys there that I was willing to put in the time and ask the right questions and learn. And through proving myself on that job, I was able to have a lot of opportunities at Kevin's office. It really was from that project into a lot more educational and high-profile kind of arts things. And now Kevin is largely doing really large-scale educational projects. He's found his niche. Yeah, they're a very successful firm and their success is certainly deserved because they work really hard and there are a lot of really talented people there. So after six or seven years, you went to graft? Uh, Well, sort of. At the end of that time, I did take a little break. I knew that it was a really intense experience there and a lot of late nights and weekends. And so I... And and why the change? Why'd you leave? I think it was just time. I'm always, will always be grateful for what I learned there, but I knew that I needed to focus on some other things in life and focus on just sort of like getting my head right, maybe a teeny bit burnout. And so I went to New Zealand for three months, wow. largely, largely lived out of a tent, rented a 1976 Peugeot 504, basically drove it around New Zealand for three months. By yourself? Islands. Yeah. And you meet friends along the way, but mostly by myself. And this is how have, you're decompressing. This is my decompression time. <laughs> okay. It? You're halfway around the world from LA in a place you've never been, presumably, right? New Zealand. Never been. Why New Zealand then? Are you a Lord of the Rings fan? Uh, no, well, I am a Lord of the Rings fan. I can't knock on that, but it wasn't that. Some very good friends of mine that actually also had been at Frank Gehry's office had decided to move to New Zealand as a sort of early retirement and to start a brewery. And one night I was just having beers with my friend Jim and he and his wife, Anne had moved down there. 
And they were always kind of my spiritual mentors here in LA. And I said, yeah, I think I got to figure out some stuff and decide if I want to stay in LA, figure out what I want to do with my career and my life. And he said, you know what? He's like, you should just come to New Zealand. And I think literally on the spot, I said, yeah, I think that's exactly what I need to do. And I sold most of what I had, what I wanted to keep, I put in a storage unit, flew down there with my mountain bike, rented my Peugeot, and just started traveling around. And did it work? Did it decompress? Yeah, it was actually a really important time for me because I got recentered. And that's when I really decided what I ultimately wanted to do was to start my own practice and to start it in Los Angeles. I wasn't certain until that point that I wanted to stay in LA. And while I was there and you're meeting people and talking to people, I noticed that I'd made a transition from telling people that, oh yeah, I'm from Oregon. I grew up in this small town in Oregon. So yeah, I'm from Los Angeles. That's really where I identified with the most at that point. It was really when I was down there. You know, I don't know the specific moment, but it certainly was when I was coming back from New Zealand that I realized LA is the place for me. And I got to start working towards my goal, which is to start my own design practice. Have you always been a guy that follows his gut? Because these decisions that you're sharing, I mean, they're really like sixth sense. This is where I am right now. And I really feel like this is the shift I need to make. And then you act on it, which all of those things independently are breakthrough level feelings and thoughts and awareness, but you've got all of them. So has that, do you ever remember, like, does that come from your parents? Does that come from a spiritual belief or it's just something that you've always had because you're very, not only instinctive, but you're very connected to what your gut level thoughts and direction should be and then follow up on it. And it's been right. Yeah. It's actually something that you have to learn. And it's something that I've had to teach myself. And it's those moments that I've been talking about that were the lessons that have made me realize that you have to trust your gut. It's really easy for me and for everyone to sit and worry about every decision in life. And I've realized that all of the most important decisions that I've made in my life, I just trusted my gut and I made that decision immediately. It was moving to LA, it was going to New Zealand, and just learning to trust your instincts is so important because you build up your knowledge and you have your life experience and you just have to know that somewhere deep down you're accessing that stuff really quickly and you just have to go with it. And especially now that our practice is growing and we have you know, a lot of people and a lot of projects, trusting your instincts is so important because you just don't have as much time to dedicate to every little decision in a design problem. And so those lessons and those things that I did certainly impact the way that I approach decision-making. I don't know if it's learned. I don't know where it came from, but I'm very aware that you just have to trust your instincts. It's such an important part of, I think, life and being a designer. And so you come out of New Zealand and go back to LA. You're there in New Zealand for three months. You come back and now you're clear that the next big chapter in your life is going to be starting your own firm. And what do you do? What happens next? Well, that's it. I got back. I was completely broke because I'd spent my entire savings running around and having a good time for a few months. And that's when I came back. I went to work for Graft here in Los Angeles. They were founded here in LA, but also primarily a German company and based out of Berlin. And when I got there, I realized, I think, again, it was just this confidence of just having gone to New Zealand, getting recentered, 
And I brought a new sort of, I guess, yeah, just really a confidence to what I was doing. And I landed there and they immediately put me in charge of this huge project that had already started construction, but our component of it hadn't been designed in Las Vegas. It was uh, the Aria pool facility at City Center in Las Vegas, $60 million project. I hadn't done anything of that scale yet. And I was in charge. They threw me right into it. And all of those lessons that I'd learned along the way that was where I was able to first put my knowledge into practice. And I think it was the first time I felt like I was playing or walking the tightrope without a net underneath me. And Really? Even more than the big project at Daily? Yeah, I had so much support and so much help there. And Kevin, all the other people around were such great architects. I always felt like I had a ton of support. For the first time at Graph, people were looking to me to be that support. It was a much uh, younger company. At the time, it was largely young kids that were right out of school. It was kind of time to step up. It's a coming of age for you, it sounds like, this yeah. particular moment. And really, it's my time there that I think that I learned that I had the ability to do it. I had the ability to do things on my own, even though there was a structure there. But I realized, yeah, I can do this. I can have my own practice. We can go out there and make this thing happen. Well, this is the moment, it sounds like, when the clarity you had from New Zealand that you want to start your own firm meets the confidence that you needed to kind of push you into actually doing it. That's exactly right. So then when do you start your own firm? And when does the world get ox? (laughs) Well, initially, it was was founded in 2008. But a lot of the early work was moonlighting, little things here and there. I've done more bathroom renovations and additions than I can even count. But coming from 2008 into 2009, when the economy was just completely falling apart. Right. uh, Kind of another 9-11, strangely enough. Yeah. You know, these big life world altering things, everything was changing. Graft was really struggling. And all of a sudden I realized there's probably not going to be a spot here for me anymore. And so I went to China to work for the Beijing office for a little bit. And while I was there, all of a sudden, all these weird opportunities in LA started to happen. Really cool furniture design project, a couple small renovation jobs that would later turn into bigger things. And I realized while I was working in China, I was working a full-time job for Graft. And then I was up most of the night during the day in the US working on my own little projects. And so I was there three months, came back to LA. And that's really when I went fully on my own in 2010. And for a year and a half, it was really just me at my dining room table. And it was you know a lot of little things, everything I could scrap together. Because there wasn't a lot happening in that time period. It was really, really slow in construction. I was really fortunate that I had two, I don't want to call it big, big for me at the time, residential renovation projects. Nice. One of them literally started out, maybe the one that's the biggest one is somebody you probably know, which is uh, Lucky Lair, drummer from the Circle Jerks. Okay. And he had just bought this new house in Doheny Estates. He was, I think, downsizing a little bit from a bigger house that he'd had prior to the recession. And the job started out as the house is kind of in disrepair. I need a new fence, maybe touch up the pool and a little bar area because they like to have parties. Almost so small that they don't need an architect. Yeah. I'm glad he didn't know that at the time. (laughs) Yeah, me too. um, He became not only a really good friend, but somebody that I think taught me a lot about luxury residential design. 
my background was from a very modest upbringing. And most of the work that I'd worked on prior to Keith's project and some of those other smaller renovation jobs in Beverly Hills and the Hollywood Hills, I just hadn't been around big houses and that level of luxury. And Keith was kind of the perfect client to learn from because he's very unassuming. He's a very laid back guy. He's a rock and roll guy. And so we sort of like stumbled through this project together and grew in scope and grew in scope. And we ultimately ended up putting in his own little recording area in the basement of the house. And it turned into this really cool little project. And so now, we were but back up, But back okay. up for a second. Because I want to, I want you to share something that you said, expand on it a little bit that I think is profoundly important. And that is when you were working on basically the two different time zones and doing two full-time jobs, one at night, one in the day, just prior to completely being out on your own. And then maybe even you did that when you were on your own at your dining room table for those couple of formative years. I want to touch on that because my personal journey to achieving successful, you know, accomplishments and projects and just success in general has been, you know, by a great deal because of hard work, because of sacrifice. If it took seven days a week and if I had to sleep on a client's couch, as long as they'd let me, of course, I would do it. And it didn't even phase me because I was so focused on doing a great job for the client. And I've never lost that approach, even though it's gotten a little more sophisticated, the work ethic behind it hasn't changed at all. And I notice every generation that people are getting farther and farther away from that mindset and work ethic. But the thing is, the guys who really are able to accomplish things, they're not far away from it. They get it. So what, what happened during that? What's your philosophy on that? I mean, it sounds to me like you're you know, a very hardworking guy and you step up. Well, it's all really out of the passion for design and architecture. If if I didn't love it so much, it would be really hard to put in the kind of hours that I do and people in my office do. You really have to love it. But to succeed in this or like you say, in anything, you have to put in the hours. You have to be out there hustling and working hard. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. It just... Even the people that it seems like they're really lucky and everything fell in their lap, I just, when I meet those people, you see that behind all of that is so much hard work. And those are the people that maybe maybe make it look the easiest, but it is all about just wanting it really bad and really working hard to make a thing successful. And that's at every level. That's on every single project. That's with building the office. That's with building plans to grow your studio and your practice. And it's always really funny to me because all the people that I know that have their own design firms and and architectural practices, we always kid that there's this thing that people always say, like, oh, you're so lucky. It's so amazing that this is happening. And you're so lucky. And I always think, (laughs) this sure doesn't feel like it. It feels like a lot of hard work all the time. And it's yeah, it's it gotta is. be something that you just you want to do. And, and you I still love have the work. Passion, right? Yeah, you I still do. have it. I do. And it's amazing because now that I've got decent sized staff around me, and that every time you hire a new person, especially the young people, they bring this new energy and it's reinvigorating. And the projects are getting larger and more complex and a more high profile and you just you draw from that energy and yeah you, you gotta love it if you don't love it i mean i don't even know what the point is there are days where it is tough 
And there are days where you ask yourself, what are you doing? But when you step back from it and you realize how lucky you are that you get to do this for yourself and create these things. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It, it's amazing. And, and I'm, I feel uh, it's a privilege and a blessing as opposed yeah. to a right. Yeah. I feel so lucky that I've been so blessed and so fortunate to have the opportunities that I've had. And luckily they've been very successful because of all that hard work. Your clients see it. They see that you're out there busting your butt to make their project a reality and then to fight for every little bit of design and for every dollar uh, that you can put into the project. And that shows. And I think and at least I want to believe that the hard work is really why the firm has done so well. You, certainly, there's a, a bit of luck along the way and being in the right place at the right time. But it's really all about just busting your butt once you've got that opportunity because they well, don't come I, around I, that I often. Well, it sure is. And the fact is, I mean, now we say luck is when hard work meets opportunity. But I mean, you go to job sites, right? You're actually, you know, that's part of the hard work that you've got to do. You're not a desk guy all the time. You're actually out there looking at what's going on and talking to your project managers. And actually, when you mentioned being efficient with cutting costs and maximizing dollars spent, you know, that takes an awareness of the project which is what the hard work is actually doing. That's what it consists of. That's what you find, right? Yeah, yeah, I think, and I say this all the time in the office, that we're running marathons. Buildings take a long time to realize, and you have to bring the same energy at the napkin sketch that you have when you're out there doing your punch list at the end of the job, making sure the contractor's correcting little mistakes and smudges on paint. And I think that, you really have to bring that same level of energy all the way through. And to your point about out there on job sites, I'm always out running around. I mean, part of, I think my job description is like the hustler in chief. If, if I'm in the office all day, I feel like I'm not doing my job. I've got to be out there checking on projects, meeting with clients, meeting potential clients. I mean, it's really a 24-7 job. I mean, I think anyone that has a small business will tell you that you're never not working. Every time you're out on the town, you're meeting new people, that's potential for growth of the firm and new work. And especially with creative things, inspiration comes in at weird times and all hours of the day and night. You keep a sketchbook by your bed and when you're tossing and turning in the middle of the night and then the idea finally hits you, you, you wake up and you put in the time to draw it out and bring it into the office the next morning. I mean, I find that a lot of my most creative ideas actually happen when I'm just driving home at the end of the day. When you've been toiling over something at the office, sitting there sketching and working with the team to come up with things and you just can't get that idea. And then sometimes you, you step away from it and you're just, you're listening to the radio on the drive home and just that inspiration comes. And, and that's just it. You're always sort of plugged into what you're doing. And it makes it sometimes hard to take breaks or vacations, but it's, again, it's part of that passion. I feel really, I feel most uncomfortable when I feel out of touch with what's happening when, when well, I'm it's away. It's in your blood. You, and yeah. you're so passionate. And so your business is, is part of you as opposed to just something you go and do for a certain amount of hours. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's the beauty of it. 
And that's why Ox Architecture has been successful and, and keeps growing. It's not by accident. So part of my world anyway is very much about technology and how much technology, especially in the last few years, do you find yourself integrating into projects and having to be aware of? And how, how has it changed from 10 years ago when you know the iPhone was just being born and people were still on Blackberries and flip phones and Palm Pilots and all this other stuff to now where technology is absolutely standard in everybody's life? I mean, five-year-olds have iPads. Yeah, it's maybe not even a yearly thing. It's it feels like daily things are changing for us. And I think that on the technology front, that there's really two things that we try to stay focused on for the office and for our clients. Internally, it's making sure that we have the right technology and the best technology that actually helps us do our work and convey our ideas to clients. So your back office technology has to be efficient working for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think, and then the second part of it is the technology that goes into our projects. Of course, and, right, but, which is my but, world. Yeah, exactly. And so an office level, it's really hard to keep up with the changes in software and all the things that are happening. But ultimately what we try to do is we pick the tools that best support the way that we design and the way that we convey our projects to people. And so, you know, ultimately these are a computer program software is no different than a pencil. It's a tool that's allowing you to convey an idea. So you, you look for the things that work the way you think. Well, and, and so, it's the archer, not the arrow. You know, you're always yeah, looking yeah, yeah. for better and better arrows. But the fact is that, like you said, whether it's a pencil or whether it's an Apple pencil with 10 millisecond response time on a beautiful retina display, it's just ways of getting your ideas out faster and more clearly. Yeah, exactly. And what about on the client side? So now here you are having to integrate them actually into your designs or going on the plans. You're having to implement these ideas that a lot, especially in LA, especially in the Hollywood area, you got screening rooms and you've got recording studios and you've got all kinds of high tech, you know, needs from the clientele that a lot of entertaining at these homes that goes on and sound everywhere. But yet you still have a lot of aesthetic that you have to be aware of. And so how has that changed over the last few years for you? Well, for us, so I'm sort of technology agnostic, we'll say. I don't really care about the brand that it is or the function of it. For me, it's always about what does the client prefer and yep. what suits their lifestyle the same way that we pick software that suits the way that we work. Yep. And so a, a big Great part approach. of it, yeah, a big part of it is just listening to your clients and listening to the things that they need or the things that they know because everyone is tech savvy now. Even people that you wouldn't expect have a system that they like to use or a way that they like to live. And that's actually the best way to learn is just to listen to the people that you're working with and see the things that they're using or listen to them about the things that they're using that you can maybe offer a better solution on. But we work with a lot of uh, musicians who've done a lot of recording studios and we're now doing some performing arts projects. and. The biggest thing that we've learned working with the musicians is that they know way more than we're ever going to know. 
And it's not just the technical side. They know the kind of space that they want to be in to make the kind of music that they make. And, you know, one of the musicians that we did a recording studio for, pretty well-known musician, we were talking one day and I said, yeah, we really want to do double walls in the studio and make sure it's really heavy insulation and the glass, we don't want any reverb and these things. And he said, no, no, no. He goes, for the kind of music that I do, I want the space really alive. I want it to be clear to somebody with a refined ear that this was recorded in this studio, that there's just characteristics of this space that you can feel in the music. And, And for him, it was about the feel. And for that house, what we ended up doing is we put in pull boxes and conduits throughout the entire house so he could literally record in every single room of the house. And one of his favorite ISO booths is actually the powder room on the ground floor. And that's not uh, keeping up with technology thing. That's listening to the needs of the person that's going to be using the space. And he's got super sophisticated things and products that I'll never totally understand. But to me, it's about what are the things that you need? And if I don't know about it, we're going to find the people that are experts in that field to get you the things that you need. And as things become more and more complicated and the buildings we're working on are more and more sophisticated, we are relying more and more on specialty consultants to help us out. We've got a really good theater design company that we've partnered with on a couple of the performing arts centers really good engineers across the board. And the reason why I think having those specialty consultants is really important is that allows me to focus on what's most important to me, which is making really amazing dynamic spaces. Because the technology can change, but the key is to build a space that feels right and has the qualities of architecture that people come to us for. And And that's timeless, by the way. That's that's the opposite of technology. That's exactly right. The technology is going to come and go. You're going to be able to plug in the new gadget. I mean, and that's also rooted in the name of my company, Ox. Ox Jack was the thing that was there ready for the next and newest gadget. And there it is, everybody. Brian Wickersham. And that's uh, what a a perfect (laughs) ending, by the way. I couldn't have planned that better. And that is so oxoffice.com is how you find Brian and his firm. And Brian, thank you so much for being here today on, on Luxury in Full Effect. I know Justin wishes he were here for this as well, but it's been such an honor and privilege to have you. And thank you. Thank you again for having me. It was really great. It was a fun conversation. Awesome. So Brian Wickersham, Ox Architecture, oxoffice.com. Thank you, everybody. I'm David Frangioni for Justin Lee, Luxury and Full Effect, L-I-F-E. Until next time, see you later. Thank you for listening. Head on over to luxuryandfulleffect.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover more content. Until next time.